0: Welcome to The Honest Report, a weekly podcast analyzing media coverage of the Arab-Israeli conflict, anti-Semitism, and radical Islamic terrorism.
1: The Islamic State group posted a video calling on Palestinians to attack Israeli soldiers and civilians.
0: At least five killed in B'nai B'raq after the assailant went on a shooting spree firing from a motorcycle. Here's your host, Rob Walker. Despite Israel being stronger and more stable than it's ever been before, the Middle East nevertheless presents many threats to the Jewish state. Perhaps the two biggest challenges facing the country today are the Iranian nuclear threat and the conflict with the Palestinians. World powers appear close to an agreement with the Islamic Republic of Iran over a new proposed nuclear deal, which, if media reports are accurate, may be no better than the 2015 one as far as Israel is concerned. And as for the peace process, Israel's peace partner Mahmoud Abbas of the Palestinian Authority recently revealed his true self when he refused to condemn the 1972 Munich Massacre of Israeli athletes and instead accused Israel of committing 50 holocausts against the Palestinians. So what does all this mean for Israel, a country of prosperity and stability, but also facing very real threats? In this week's podcast, we sit down with William Deroff. CEO of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, a Washington, D.C.-based umbrella group representing many smaller organizations. Deroff is a widely regarded commentator on Israel and Jewish affairs. Welcome to the Honest Report podcast. William Deroff, welcome to the Honest Report podcast.
1: Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be with you, Robert.
0: Uh, The pleasure is all ours. Uh, You are, of course, uh, very busy. Uh, You have a lot of different projects going on. I wanted to chat with you about one story which really didn't seem to get a lot of attention, uh, at least uh, in Western press. And this is um, in August, uh, Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas was in Berlin meeting with the German Chancellor um, on the really the 50th anniversary, of course, of the Munich Olympics massacre uh, of Israeli athletes. And he was asked if he would condemn it. And not only did he refuse to do so, He did it on the grounds that uh, Israel had committed, uh, you know, quote unquote, 50 holocausts against Palestinians. I guess from from my perspective, it's quite remarkable that such incendiary language didn't seem to get a lot of press. In your experience, did they get a lot of press? Did this get a lot of attention from decision makers? Why did this story not seem to get a lot of attention?
1: It is a a very good question, uh, Robert, and speaks to part of the, uh, double standards that exist as it relates to uh, the Palestinians is distinct from just any other uh, political leaders uh, in the world. You have uh, Mahmoud Abbas, who is in the 17th year uh, of his four-year term, uh, is one who wrote a dissertation in graduate school in Russia uh, on Holocaust denial, denying that the Holocaust existed and or that its scope is what it actually was. Uh, He is someone who uh, is involved actively in paying Palestinians to murder Jews through the infamous Pay to Slay program, uh, which also should be condemned more than it's being condemned. Uh, and here, uh, just a few weeks ago, when he was in Germany meeting with the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz in Berlin, uh, he accused, as you said, Israel committing holocausts against Palestinians over the years. Uh, and that obviously is a way of diminishing and demeaning the impact of the Shoah of the Holocaust where 6 million Jews were murdered. Uh, And it was, as you said, remarkably sort of ignored. Uh, At the time, uh, Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor um, sort of uh, grimaced when uh, Abbas said it. Uh, And about uh, 15 hours later, the next day, um, his uh, bureau came out with a statement uh, condemning uh, Abbas's statement. Uh, and for uh, uh, minimizing the Holocaust. Uh, and in fact, there's a prosecutor, a German prosecutor who's looking into whether Abbas's statement violated German law as it relates to the Holocaust. As, as you may be aware, Germany has very strict rules about the Holocaust, about the denial, about the Jewish hatred and the like uh, that uh, run contrary, say, to a First Amendment kind of uh, idea that we have here in the United States. Uh, but one that uh, I think and it's clearly relevant and important given uh, where Germany has been in the 20th century. Uh, and so this is an issue that uh, continues to be uh, out there, but it's one that, as you said, doesn't seem to uh, demean or diminish uh, Palestinian authority or Abbas's standing in the world community. And perhaps part of that is that they've just so watered down uh, what's expected of them because they have failed over and over uh, to meet any sort of expectation of, being a positive, a positive force uh, for peace, or a positive force even for their own uh, population, uh, that we've so lowered the standards that when the boss says these ridiculous, hateful things, mostly the world just grimaces and moves on. And I think it's it's outrageous. So, what does that
0: say about Mahmoud Abbas's role as a uh, peace partner uh, with Israel?
1: You know, I I think it's pretty clear. He's not much of a peace partner. Um, he has been uh, in office since two thousand five. Uh, one thing that he has clearly done uh, is lived up uh, to the old uh, Abba Eben, uh saying that Palestinians never miss an opportunity, to miss an opportunity. Uh, there have been many opportunities for big peace, for little peace um, uh, along the way that uh, with Clinton, uh, I'm sorry, with Obama, uh, with George W. Bush, in fact, um, uh, and even with Donald Trump, with Trump's uh, peace plan, which included a two-state solution. Uh, Abbas has just turned the other way and Palestinian civil society has turned the other way. Uh, I think it's worth noting that Abbas does not have much political support uh, within uh, the PA, um, that, uh, that there's just not, he's not very popular and there's a, a stress with Hamas and other forces who are trying to hedge them out of the way. Um, but it's it's clear that the current constellation of Palestinian leadership is not going to lead them uh, or the Israelis or the world on a road to peace.
0: So what do you see as the, uh, the likely next step then for, uh, for Israeli-Palestinian peace negotiations or is such a concept so too sort of fantastical to even consider given the current leadership in the Palestinian Authority?
1: Great question. I, I think actually uh, to the, the great benefit uh, and great uh, Uh, Of the the Biden administration's view on this, Um, they are not uh, in a place where they think that um, they could just, uh, as we would say in American football terms, uh, throw a a, a Hail Mary, uh, throw the uh, football into the end zone and hope somebody catches it uh, to get a Nobel Prize, as previous administrations have done. So there does seem to be in the Biden administration uh, a smart sense of what's realistic and what's not realistic that there would not be a peace deal, there would not be a Nobel Peace Prize uh, in the next 18 months. Uh, And it's smart um, that the US and others recognize that and aren't trying to force uh, a circle into a square. Um, That being said, uh, the Biden administration is also focused on trying to enhance the Abraham Accords, building on the Trump administration's uh, efforts there. Uh, And I believe the Abraham Accords have a great uh, ability to soften the ground uh, so that there can be peace, not just regionally between Israel uh, and her neighbors, uh, but also uh, internally uh, with uh, the PA. Uh, this uh, outside-in approach, where for the last, you know, literally 70 years, but let's say uh, since the Oslo times, uh, the direct discussions between uh, the Israelis and the Palestinians are not leading to the promised land. Uh, so perhaps by having uh, UAE and Bahrain and other nations in the Gulf and other Arab and Muslim nations um, engaged with Israel, um, it can move the Palestinians to see that there is a train leaving the station, a station of uh, Middle East uh, economic growth uh, and prosperity and reform. Uh, and if the Palestinians don't get on, they're going to get left behind. Uh, and so I think that's probably the greatest best hope now uh, would be that uh that Arab states in the region uh, pull the Palestinians along uh, and that they'll see the benefits. In the meantime, there certainly are um, smaller sort of competence building measures that can happen. uh, But from my point of view, there really cannot be any progress until the Palestinians stop uh, their immoral pay to slay uh, programs that no matter what they do with their left hand, as long as their right hand is continuing to pay people to murder Jews and they receive more compensation uh, for the more Jews they kill, uh, this is not a partner in any way, and certainly not a partner for peace. Mm-hmm.
0: So uh, that seems, uh, I think, a great um, a great jumping off point to discuss the, uh, the nuclear uh, negotiations with Iran. Update us a little bit in terms of uh, what's happening right now on that front.
1: Well, by the time uh, we were broadcast, uh, perhaps there will be, uh, be uh, a deal or some white smoke uh, coming out at the moment. Um, the U.S. has uh, responded uh, to the uh, EU, um, to the Iranian response to the EU proposal, and we are waiting for the Iranian response. Um, the, uh, there are a lot of questions here, and I think that sort of starting from the beginning uh, is the issue of how trustworthy the Iranians are, and if they receive, as reports have indicated, uh, early on in the front end of the deal, tens of billions of dollars, um, those funds, uh, we would grant any way to sort of uh, guarantee or safeguard how those funds are used. Uh, I think there's no question that those funds will be used for malevolent purposes uh, to fund Iranian proxies throughout the region, uh, including those uh, that threaten Israel, uh, to fund their missile development program. Um, folks who think that uh, these billions of dollars are just going to go towards uh, paying for uh, baby formula uh, and milk uh, are, I think, uh, ignoring what this Iranian regime has been up to for the last um, 40-some years. Um, the verification uh, provisions that have been uh, reported are also ones uh, that seem weak, particularly with the Iranians trying to avoid uh, IAEA, International Atomic Energy uh, Administration, uh, supervision uh, of their existing sites. Um, it is really unclear to me, the value uh, that would flow uh, from this deal, other than allowing the Iranians to significantly increase uh, their coffers uh, of cash in order to uh, participate in malevolent activities and to guide and lead malevolent activities uh, across the region. So it is uh, at the moment, uh, we're sort of waiting to see uh, whether there will be white smoke uh, coming from Vienna that will indicate that that there is a deal. Uh, If in fact, there is a deal then we believe it's essential that there be congressional review of the deal, uh, that the administration brings it to the United States Congress uh, for its uh, review. Uh, and then we'll see what's the, what the terms are of the deal and the extent to which um, it has uh, the staying power. Uh, but it is uh, something we're very, very concerned about. Uh, we're concerned about uh, Iranian actions in general and very concerned that this prospective deal will not be um, stop Iran from its, uh, as I said, its level one activities throughout the region and, uh, and its nuclear program. One of the major critiques
0: of the, the previous deal or in its previous form was the hyper-focus on Iran's nuclear uh, capabilities as opposed to its larger nefarious activities, as you mentioned the Middle East, uh, yep. intercontinental ballistic missiles, support for terrorism, et cetera. How likely do you see this new version, you know, the JCPOA 2.0, if you will, actually addressing that? Or do you think they're gonna make the same mistake all over again?
1: Uh, they will definitely make the same mistake all over again. The first time around, with uh, JCPOA 1.0 in 2015, uh, we made this exact same point. And the response that came from the Obama White House uh, and Ben Rhodes in particular, a National Security uh, Council aide who was leading um, the effort on this, was that uh, make a deal with Iran, get them into the sort of civilized uh, company of of nations across the world. Uh, They will warm up, they will see the value of engagement Uh, And then we, the United States and the West will be able to engage with them to try to promote other good behavior throughout the region. Um, That that clearly did not happen. Uh, There was no sign of that at all. In fact, uh, in the very first months after the first JCPOA uh, started uh, and there were those uh, uh, pallets of cash uh, that were provided to the Iranians, uh, they significantly increased uh, their support uh, for say the Houthis in Yemen, Uh, as well as for other uh, acts of international terrorism across the world. Um, uh, So there's no indication that that won't happen again. Uh, We've been pushing the current administration, uh, if they are to engage here with the Iranians, to also try to open up into other fronts. Uh, But the Iranians uh, from the get-go have refused for this to be a discussion of anything other than the nuclear program. And, uh, And there's no indication at all um, that there's uh, any willingness by them to talk about anything else. And I think that um, the Biden administration, I think, smartly is not over-promising uh, that this will um, you know, open doors uh, elsewhere, but they're focused on the nuclear program. And their view is that, uh, but for uh, a deal like this, uh, the Iranians will um, press fast forward and go straight towards uh, nuclear enrichment, and this is the way to stop it. Uh, and so they are single-minded on that goal. Uh, the problem being, of course, that um, we just don't see this as a, a mechanism uh, that will significantly uh, delay uh, or stop um, the Iranian development, which uh, we know uh, through, for instance, the, the uh, files that the Mossad um, stole uh, from Iran some years ago, uh, that they uh, have had all sorts of surreptitious programs that they... Uh, do not acknowledge and that uh, are still in existence. And so uh, the discussion should talk about these other issues, about missiles, about terrorism, about the spread uh, of uh, of terror, but they're not. And that is a missed opportunity.
0: So what do you make then of uh, Iranian President uh, um, Raisi just last week? He was warning that if the IAEA continues its probes of undeclared nuclear sites in the country, that they'll back out of negotiations. Is this a uh, from coming from a position of of bravado, is this hubris? Is this weakness? I mean, uh, you know, put your psychological, uh, you know, psychology hat on, I guess, for a little bit here. I mean, where what is he trying to achieve with this kind of posturing?
1: I think he thinks that the um, ball is in his court. Um, sorry for all the sports analogies, <laughs> uh, and that um, he uh, can move. <laughs> here I go again. The goal line. Uh, wherever he wants. Uh, over these last two years of discussions, um, as the U.S. has made offers, uh, Iran has continued to increase uh, their demands. And so I think this is an indication of uh, where Raisi's head really is, which is give me the cash. I'll be to do what I'm going to do uh, and you can't stop me. Uh, and so, uh, you know, this is key. The IAEA is a key ingredient in the supervision and enforcement uh, of JCPOA 1.0 and uh, of this upcoming uh, deal should there be a deal. Uh, And the fact that here T minus uh, a week or whatever from the deal being announced that Raisi makes clear, we are not going to allow the IAEA to do the IAEA's job uh, should really be an amazingly uh, prescient indicator uh, of where Iran's head is on these issues. Uh, and that's a place that uh, is not in American or Western interests.
0: So it, it definitely does not sound uh, like you are particularly optimistic about uh, even if a deal is signed, that this deal is really going to be effective at, uh, you know, at curtailing Iran's nefarious impact in the region. I mean, what, what does that mean for, uh, for Israel then?
1: I'll take half a step back and say, I've not seen uh, the deal. Uh, as far as we know, there is not a you know a deal with a capital D at this very moment. Um, that being said, my thoughts here are based on the leaks uh, that have come out uh, from all sides, from America, from Iranians, from the Europeans, and from others who are engaged, uh, as well as from facts about what we know about Iranian behavior and Iranian motivations. Um, so you know, I'm hopeful that if a deal is announced, that it's going to be the deal to end all deals. Uh, and Iran will cease their nuclear program, they will see the the joy and uh, and majesty of engaging with the West uh, towards peaceful uh, endeavors, Uh, and we can all um, sing Kumbaya together. Uh, I am, however, uh, hesitant uh, to believe that that will be the reality, but there's a piece of me that for sure wants to wait and see uh, in black and white on on paper uh, what the deal is. Um, so that being said, the consequences here for Israel, um, should there be a deal and, and a bad deal. Uh, and to remind you, the Biden administration said that they were looking for a stronger and longer deal. Uh, and in fact, this deal should be leaks be accurate is neither stronger nor longer uh, than the first JCPOA. Uh, Israel should be very concerned. Uh, Israel is very much on the front lines. We know from history that when dictators threaten the Jewish people, we should listen, period. You do not have to go back very far uh, in our history to know this. Uh, and in fact, you can go back to the very beginning of our history uh, to know this. Uh, and so when uh, the, the mullahs the Ayatollah, Raisi, uh, and others make threats about Israel, uh, which they won't even call Israel uh, by its name, uh, that we should take that seriously. And so uh, I believe that uh, the Israeli political leadership and the vast majority of the military and security uh, leadership, uh, including 5,000 senior Israeli uh, security uh, officials who signed a letter to President Biden um, just in the last few days, uh, believe that this deal will create more of a security problem for Israel. Uh, and it's one that Israel will need to uh, gear up for. Uh, with billions of dollars in cash rolling towards uh, Iranian proxies, uh, as well as the threat uh, of an Iranian nuclear program uh, and the you know, well over 100,000 uh, rockets and missiles that are in uh, southern Lebanon, uh, controlled by the Iranian proxy Hezbollah that are pointed at Israel. Um, this is a very difficult security situation for Israel and one uh, that they rightly are very concerned about and one you hear concern from left and right. Uh, from Lapid, uh, from Netanyahu, uh, and from, uh, as I said, folks uh, to their left and to their right. This is not a partisan issue uh, in Israel. It should not be a partisan issue uh, here in the United States. Uh, but it definitely needs to be one that we focus on and recognize uh, that Israel's security will likely not be enhanced by this deal.
0: Well, uh, definitely a big story to uh, to follow in the coming days. Uh, William Daroff, thank you so much for joining us.
1: My pleasure. Great to be with you, Robert. Keep up the great work.
0: And that's today's edition of the Honest Report Podcast. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to our mailing list, our podcast channel, and follow us on social media for the most up-to-date news. If you like what you've heard, please consider a donation to support our continued efforts at www.honestreporting.ca slash donate. Until next time, thank you so much for listening.